welcome to Test Podagogy. My guest today is Andrew Shabilsky, a psychologist and associate professor and director of research at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. Today we're going to look at all things screen-related, tech-related, and I think, Andrew, perhaps the best place to start would be to talk about whether we can even talk about tech in such general terms. I mean, is it useful to talk about tech as a group, or do we always have to get down into the, to the nuance, into the subcategories? Yeah, I think that we probably do have to get into the nuance, um, if only because um, we wouldn't talk about, say, uh, if we were talking about literature, we wouldn't talk about paper time. Um, if we were talking about social interactions, we wouldn't talk about FaceTime. Um, if we were kind of talking about tech in the classroom, um, we probably have to drill down uh, into some specifics. And do you think that, in your experience, um, education tends to be quite... Uh, suspicious of of tech uh and and specifically you know the head if you go by the headlines and and twitter in the teachers here screen time particularly gets quite a bad rep yeah well i'm not sure so i, I come from a family of teachers um i don't know if i can count myself as, as a lecturer as a teacher but you know i've, I've definitely seen um, both of my grandmothers um, my father my mother uh, two of my aunts are all teachers so i've I've seen many of them in the classroom as technology has, has advanced, and it's definitely a force, uh, depending on the principal or the head teacher um, and their attitude and approach to tech. But um, I can definitely see in, in, in the way the teachers are kind of on the front lines of childhood in a lot of ways, and even pedagogy per se, um, it really makes sense that, that teachers are involved in this conversation. And I guess it, it's it's sort of computer games that get the the poorest rep in in education and in general. I guess in your wider research and and who you come into contact with, are computer games a bit of a villain in numerous sectors, not just education? Yeah. So I think that the easiest way to understand kind of new and developing technologies and whether or not they're seen as a villain is, is to kind of cast yourself back in time a bit. You know. So. In the 90s, we would have been worried about rap music uh, or Dungeons and Dragons, um, and you know there, there have been these kind of um, kind of a new a new social or technological um, aspect is introduced to the classroom or introduced to the family or to society, and there's kind of a, a kind of a natural tendency to resist it or be skeptical of it. And so if we get into the sort of reality of the situation, then should we start with screen time? And as that seems to generate the most headlines, I mean, there's, there's headlines this morning when we're recording about whether screen time impacts sleep. And we've also seen whether screen, tap, uh, screen time impacts concentration levels. And, you know, teachers are saying, oh, my, child, you know, my students are, too, are spending too long on their phones. They're getting too much screen time and that's impacting what happens in the classroom. Is there extensive research around screen time? Is screen time as a category again too broad should we get into specifics of what screen time and what devices yeah so obviously yeah we should break it down the same way we you know we wouldn't again talk about literature in terms of paper time mm. but um you know um the, the kind of really interesting thing here is that there's kind of an implicitly a dualistic notion of you know analog time and digital time mm. and so the idea here is that you know human beings kind of evolved and grew into uh, social groups in the last 200,000 years before the invention of the iPad. And then um, kind of at you know, some point around World War II, uh, you know, um, cathode ray tubes were invented and humanity changed. And <laughs> the idea is that basically, you know, it's almost like a Descartesian notion that like any moment that you spend with a screen in the digital world 
um, must necessarily displace kind of a, a natural, kind of purer analog experience. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's probably at the heart of, of the way we talk about or think about screen time, um, that kind of implicit philosophical distinction. Like in terms of research, though, um, you know, generally what social scientists do, psychologists, epidemiologists, pediatricians, pediatric researchers, um, is they kind of, they ask parents or they ask kids, um, how much time do you spend on specific devices, watching television, playing video games? Um, and then they ask them questions about their health, their well-being, their sleep. Um, and then in some way, um, they kind of statistically model the relationship between the answers about screen time and the answers about health. And if you can imagine kind of two overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram, um, the amount that they co-vary, uh, kind of the overlap between those two circles, is generally between half of 1% and 1%. Okay. <laughs> So it's perception, really, like what, we're, what we're measuring. It's a perception of impact. Is, is, would that be fair? Yeah, and, and I think that there's, you know, um, just because kind of it's not a very good type of evidence to judge impact, you know, on the individual child level and on the classroom level, um, it doesn't mean that the kind of concerns aren't valid. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking into this. It just means that there's kind of a lot of opportunities for kind of sloppy researchers and maybe cynical researchers um, to kind of get to their own academic incentives. Like, it's very easy to publish on a scary technology result. And do they, um, obviously most chi most of children or teenagers will be using phones for their um, screen time experience, let's say. Uh, does that make a difference, that it's now on phones rather than, say, 15 years ago it had been on a PC or um, even further back, uh, you know, a, a Commodore 64 or something? Yeah. Well, so that's a really great question. And so kind of intuitively that makes sense. You know, you can rhetorically make the argument that um, because the screen is mobile, because it can follow a child, the child can bring it into their bedroom, it must necessarily have a larger impact. But kind of unfortunately, you know, though we were worried about, you know, Commodore 64, and there was a giant panic about home, you know, more advanced home consoles in the early 2000s and Internet games 10 years ago, um, because that research was done so poorly, we can't really say that, you know, empirically, like from a scientific perspective, we can't really say that these forms of technology have more impact. You know, this is very different than, say, pharmaceutical research, where if you kind of devised a, an antidepressant, you know, 20 years ago, and then a new one comes along, you can actually directly compare how effective they are uh, in terms of alleviating someone's symptoms. But unfortunately, because of the way the work is done, because people kind of take their p-value of less than 0.05 and you know, they go on the BBC Breakfast uh, warning, warning parents and teachers about the dangers of screens, um, we're really comparing apples and oranges. And it's said that research is getting better, presumably, from, from the, li the likes of your, your own uh, institute. Yeah, well, I'd hope so. So, you know, you brought up the, the, the work on sleep. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I would highlight that as an example of us trying to do a bit better. You know, I'm a, I'm a parent of two uh, under fives, so they were very well represented in this study of 50,000 Americans, uh, American children uh, that we analyzed. And, you know, you know if, if, I have, um, if I have one kid who, if I have two kids that I have to put to bed because my wife is traveling, um, I need to know, you know, if I, if I put one in front of two episodes of Octonox, when I take the young one up to go to sleep, um, I really want to know what kind of impact that time is going to have on, on 
for sleep if I if I get my two year old to, to, to go down. Mm. And um, you know, if statistical significance is how we judge this, and no one shows their work, um, as a parent, that research doesn't help me. Mm. Um, but if I focus on practical significance, so we found that you know if I, if my daughter watches two episodes of Octonauts, that's about 20 minutes of screen time. Um, that's really only going to cost her about 140 seconds of sleep over the night. And so right. as a parent, if I put these things into real-world terms, um, it helps me make the kinds of trade-offs that, that I really need to do. I guess, it's, as you say, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an informed decision-making process rather than a, a direction that that, that that research in particular found. Um, with a lot of teenagers who I hear from teachers, they say, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're up on their phones texting at three in the morning. Uh, we need to get rid of the phones. Would you say that's a problem with the phone or is that a problem with behavior? Well, I think that, you know, this is, I, I think that this is a problem of, of kind of, relatively speaking, this is a problem of being reactive mm. as opposed to kind of being proactive or kind of seeing a child in a larger way, you know. I think that um, there's nothing really there's no reason to really believe that there's anything magical about the screens. I think that if you let teenagers interact in most mediums, uh, in other analog mediums, they'd love to hang out until three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if we look at kind of the broader health trends with young people, you know, decade on decade since the eighties, um, the amount that they drink, the amount that they uh, smoke cannabis, um, they engage in antisocial behavior. It's really halved decade on decade and so in a lot of ways young people today are kind of a lot better off in terms of health mm. and it would be pretty unrealistic to assume that they they don't want to kind of build friendships and intimate relationships um using any technology at hand and in in in, in the same vein i guess if if a child is playing computer games uh online and there are there are certain connotations of that now because of um, some of the safeguarding issues that have, that have come up very high profile safeguarding issues on online online gaming uh, sort of such as grooming by older older men on young boys on those games Do, is that mm -hmm. skewing a debate that actually is 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 a lot more um, productive and useful for young people than perhaps it's given credit for well, I guess that, yeah, so, so that's, that's actually the thing that's really kind of important here, actually, which is that, like, um, our approach to screens and our approach to technology, um, because we focus so much on things like screen time and we treat it as this kind of unitary, you know, topic mm. that's kind of either good or bad, um, but isn't very nuanced, because of that, we kind of, we miss out on things like other concerns, things like grooming, right? Mm. So... Um, it like it sucks all the air out of the room, and so we don't really think about what it would mean to say um, make a teenager choose between having access to his or her smartphone or his or her gaming account, and you know feeling safe to tell their parent that you know someone creepy is, is talking to them. And if you if you make a young person choose between kind of being honest and and being vulnerable with their parent, and you know potentially having their entire social life taken away from them kind of a, as a threat of punishment, um, you know, you're, you're asking adolescents to make really kind of unfair, potentially unsafe decisions uh, yourself. Do you think we under sort of underappreciate the, the, the importance of those online social networks and for, for teenagers? Well, I think so. Um, you know, if you ask young people um, about how they use, you know, their social ties um, online, you know, Two-thirds of them say that when, you know, stressful or horrible things happen to them, they reach out for social support. 
uh, young boys in particular, when they meet someone that they appear uh, uh, who they want to be friends with, they're fairly likely to kind of exchange their gamer tags or gamer handles um, so that, you know, even if their parents are worried about them going outside because of stranger danger or something, um, they can still meet up, you know, in, in a virtual way, um, in a digital way. And so, you know, it, we're really at risk in a lot of ways when we have these kind of hard and fast rules. And, and when this kind of stuff gets wrapped up with, you know, um, what it means to be a good parent, um, you can really have um, kind of pretty negative downstream consequences for children's social lives. And so you wouldn't necessarily be an advocate of those schools who say not only ban the phone in school, but also send letters home to parents saying you need to get your child off, off their phone all evening and, you know, we need to restrict this access to, say, you know, 20 minutes, in, you know, as a break from anything else. Yeah. So far be it for me to, to tell a head teacher how to run their school. Mm. Um, I, I highly, I highly doubt either of my grandmothers would have liked me um, mouthing off to them about that. <laughs> um, but uh, when it when it comes kind of the, to the home setting, yeah, that's 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 a pretty serious overreach um, because the there really isn't evidence, there isn't good scientific evidence that that, that protects young people or or advances their health in any way. And they're really, you know, fundamentally their human rights kind of uh, um, consequences to this. You know, the UN Charter on the Rights of the Child is very specific about under 18s having right to information, right to play, right to identity. And, you know, if you're, if, if one of the main contexts that they play and connect and learn about themselves interpersonally and sexually, if that if you're if you're filtering that, and if you're you're sending letters home as a teacher saying don't do that, um, you know you're on pretty shaky grounds when it comes to kind of international rights agreements. And and ahead of the evidence, it sounds like as well on 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 that. I mean, is there anything in the research that can give schools any hard and fast? You know, what are there any certainties in this area? Yeah. Well, no. So, you know, we've done a lot of work in this area, and I would say that a lot of it's really good work. So, you know, there, there probably aren't, at least for teenagers, there probably aren't any problems with screen time. <laughs> you could kind of, if you think about, you know, like watching things on YouTube, playing video games, uh, chatting on a smartphone, you know, one to three hours a day probably isn't bad for kids in terms of well-being. You know, there's some places where kids who kind of use screens a, a moderate amount, they look a little bit better than, than young people who have less access to screens, and that might be partially because of, you know, socioeconomic factors. Um, but you really have to be using the screen a lot in any given day for, you know, for that to have a, a kind of a negative, kind of a downside risk. Um, we know that, you know, a lot of the things that work with, with, with analog parenting you know, say a new app is released, and as a parent, you don't you don't want your kid to use the app until you figure out, you know, what the heck is it about. Um, it's a lot like what you have to do uh, when you want a kid to clean their room. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to provide a meaningful rationale for your new rule that the young person will understand. You need to communicate perspective taking that you see the world uh, through through the child through the young person's eyes, and you should really avoid or you can really avoid using like very controlling authoritarian language. It's, it's fine to be authoritative. It's fine to set rules and boundaries to put stabilizers on technology. Um, but when you, you know, 
when you're in a position where you're losing your cool, you're smashing the iPads, and, and you're making hard and fast rules on the basis of, you know, what you think is, you know, good evidence, but it's not, um, you really kind of run into a rough spot as a parent or an educator. Is there any evidence that, you know, that there have been some very, um, let's say, exaggerated headlines where it talks about a screen time epidemic or, you know, children are on their phones for eight hours a day, uh, this, mm-hmm. sort, this sort of rhetoric. Is there any evidence to suggest there are a critical number of teens or, or young people using phones to that, to that length? Yeah, no. So, so there, there have been. So uh, the, the, uh, it's not scientific evidence, but there, there's been quite a, a number of articles, uh, unfortunately, published in The Telegraph um, in the last, I don't know, six months. And um, journalists there under the duty of care campaign have actually been publishing some pretty irresponsible stuff. Uh, in my view, and so they kind of take statistics from, you know, solid statistics from Ofcom uh, and then misinterpret them, um, you know, so uh, there was one, um, this eight-hour figure uh, that, you, that, that, that you share, um, you know, basically this is a, a statistic that comes from, you know, an estimate of asking young people to add up every single thing that they do online with technology. And it was never meant to be added up by the researchers, but uh, and then divided by seven to kind of create this eight-hour statistic. Okay. But you know, it's you know, forty-two minutes of that eight hours is answering emails. You know, fifty uh, uh, thirty minutes of that eight hours is paying bills because it's actually it's young adults. It's like twenty-year-olds. Okay. Um. So so that eight hours is eaten up with research and chatting and you know, paying bills and kind of doing all the things that we do, you know, doing online shopping for food. And so that it, it does add up to a lot of time and it includes schoolwork and university work. But, but I think a lot of our lives are, um, are kind of involve a screen. So I'm not saying this conversation is particularly boring, but Twitter is open on the iPad next to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's the other criticism of the sort of technology world that uh, Silicon Valley are feeding, uh, you know, using techniques that casinos use to keep us hooked into our devices. And there's this, there's this view that, you know, the Silicon Valley CEOs won't let their children use this damaging technology. They go very analog. But so why are we, you know, but they're quite happy for us to be led astray by it. That narrative seems to be growing in education as well as, as well as wider. Is, you know, obviously yeah. tech companies do want us to use our devices, but is is it as uh, blatant as, as, as that? Yeah, so that's a really, and, and you're right, though, you, you, and your intuition here is, is really right, that this, this kind of sub-narrative that, you know, because we can find a tech executive that doesn't want their child to use the product every moment the child is alive, then surely there is hypocrisy here. And they have something we don't. And this is just for, for me. This is such a strange argument that that it's that it's critically it's it's so uncritically repeated. Mm. I mean, if you were, I don't know, if you were a bicycle manufacturer, I feel like I I, I once met Andrew Brompton. He he lived down the street from me. Okay. Um, you know, like can, can you imagine a headline that says like Andrew Brompton's children don't ride collapsible bikes. Yeah. They ride normal bikes. And then this is used at the end of a story where somebody on a Brompton bike crashes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's the strangest thing that, that it, that it carries this, 
this weight, this rhetorical weight. But it's a really strange line of thought. Um, You know, there is absolutely a cultural or, or a class component to the way that we talk about and think about screens. It is the case that people from non-white backgrounds and from poor backgrounds, they tend to use screens more, at least in the survey data. Mm. Um, and and there, is, there is absolutely a judgmental aspect uh, to all of this. If you see a young mom uh, with a, with a, rolling a pram down, down the pavement uh, and she's looking at her phone, I think a lot of us, you know, the, the, the Daily Mail to the Telegraph prepares a lot of us to think less of this young woman. Um, and I think that we should be really um, um, kind of sensitive or skeptical to this impulse. Mm. Like, what are our expectations for parents? What are our expectations for ourselves? And then how much of that is, is, is kind of engaging in upward and downward comparisons? I think we should be really wary of that. I mean, that's, that's I guess, what's one of the biggest problems with um, blanket judgments in this area is that it's so tied to, to social and um, ideological viewpoints I guess is, is probably simplifying it slightly but we bring, yeah. our, we bring a lot of baggage to our judgments don't we yeah and, and I think that I, you know I think that you know beyond generational carping which is kind of a, a perennial pastime I think that you know a lot of society is set up to, to judge moms and, and to um, you know if, if they deviate if they don't let their children if they let their children outside and there's some remote risk of being taken by a stranger. You know, I think that the statistic is you could leave the average British child outside for 750,000 years before a stranger would kidnap him or her. Okay. Um, so, so the risk is quite small. Um, but, you know, every time, you know, there's, there's a story about, you know, a, a mom being a bit too far away from a kid, um, you know, don't look at the comments. And the same thing happens with things like screens. I think screens have kind of come into that narrative. If you're not spending, you know, every second kind of taking in your adorable child and making perfect eye contact and being perfectly caring, um, then you're in some way bad or worse or lower class. And um, that's a pretty toxic, that feeds into a pretty toxic dynamic, I think. Mm. And going back to that, uh, part of that narrative around Silicon Valley about the they're making us less, you know, the, the, the way they build their apps or build their screen time experiences are creating beings that are able to concentrate for less time or are more impatient for reward. Is there any solid evidence around that as well? Yeah, so, <laughs> so all this stuff about uh, attention span reducing um, is probably nonsense. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's pretty good evidence that People don't multitask well, yeah. um, and sometimes the people who think that they're best at multitasking um, probably are the worst at it, but that's just because people who are ignorant tend to over, overestimate their ability or their knowledge of things. Okay. Um, but but I, I, I guess there's something again here, there's, there's something kind of like philosophically or, or, or kind of rhetorically wrong with this question, right? Mm. Um, because actually, let's say you're an online game maker, like you you make World of Warcraft, right? Mm-hmm. You don't actually want to make a game that is, you know, uses all the tricks in the book to get people to be playing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all right? Because the business model of, of different games and different platforms, they vary a lot. So the business model for an online game is a lot like your local gym, Right. 
the most profitable gym in the world is one that is one cubic centimeter large, that the entire world, every person on the planet, has a, a monthly membership, but nobody ever goes because they don't have to keep the lights on, they don't have to maintain the equipment, they don't have to heat the place, they don't have to you know, clean the sauna or jacuzzi or whatever. Um, so, so if you're running an online game, you actually don't want people to always be there because it's very, very expensive in terms of servers and in terms of making new content. Those trees, trees don't grow on trees <laughs> uh, in virtual environments. An artist has to draw them, uh, has to make them. And, you know, um, and for, for kind of platforms like Facebook um, or Google, you know, it's true that they, they want to show you ads they they are based on an attention economy, and especially when they were growing and they wanted to get, you know, IPO money, there was a lot of bad behavior. But I think in some ways, you know, in, in some markets, in, in Facebook, Facebook users are actually dying off, you know, in terms of dying of old age okay. um, more, quick, more quickly than new pe young people are signing up to the platforms, right? And so actually the model here isn't to burn the business model is not to burn out Facebook users on kind of short-term ad revenue, but they kind of, in some ways, you know, we might take them at the word that they want to connect people. I'm not saying that their business practices are good or data breaches aren't horrific um, and political interference isn't a problem, but um, it, it, it's kind of, it's a bit lazy to think that what's happening here is it's, it's a casino. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of people would like you to think that, you know, on the marketing side, if they think that, you know, they've got people glued to screens and then you sell ads, um, you can kind of get more money for that. And I think that if you have some level of guilt, um, if you've participated in the ad industry, um, you might look back on this time and, you know, uh, experience a lot of regret because you kind of bought into your own marketing. Mm. Um, but we really don't know. And, and the problem here is that because, these companies control all of the data. Um, scientists don't have access to it. So this is a case of an unknown unknown. Um, so if anybody tells you they know better, um, they're probably just making it up. <laughs> it's interesting you say that, actually, because, you know, it makes complete sense. The, you know, the subscription model is, is a is a model that, you know, exists in so many different spheres, including publishing and and you're right. You know, you don't you don't want someone to be doing it 24/7 because you will burn out. So, I I understand that part quite well. But in terms of uh, the sort of more general evidence around what these games can do, then there, there's there's nothing to suggest that. Uh, so a teacher might be wrong to think, oh, this child's being really inattentive in class. It's because he sp spends too long playing Candy Crush at home, for example. <laughs> well, um, um, you'll never get me to defend Candy Crush. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think it means that we need to be sensitive to the differences between the games. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I helped my dad. Um, he's, a, he's an eighth grade and ninth, ninth year science teacher. And so I, I, I helped him watch his kids for something called the Science Olympiad okay. uh, out in the States. And it was the, it was the week after Fortnite came out on mobile. Okay, yeah. And so I watched everyone, <laughs> every second they weren't building rockets and rubber band propeller airplanes and they all compete or something. Um, they were all playing Fortnite on their phones. And 
if I had been a less critical person, it would have been very easy for me to say, wrap in all of my worst fears about um, Candy Crush and uh, fears about loot boxes and, you know, games being free and being addictive. And I could have, I could have wrapped it all up into one ball of anxiety, seeing, seeing all these 15 year, 13, 14 year olds um, um, staring at, staring at their screens. But, but I know that that's not the case with Fortnite. Like this is a case where like all screens and all games are not the same. Like Fortnite doesn't have loot boxes. It doesn't have this gambling mechanic that, that is in other games, mm. right? If you want a cool dance, if you want uh, a new outfit, a uh, new skin, um, you, you, you spend 50p or 75p. You, you buy it directly. Um, and so it's much easier to understand how popular the game is on its merits, that it's, it's multiplayer, uh, it's mobile, it's quote-unquote free, so parents don't have to, kids don't have to beg their parents for, you know, 300 quid for a gaming system and then another 50 quid for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so really, you know, what you're seeing is, is socialization. You're seeing kind of a, a game of capture the flag. You're not seeing gambling. And, and this kind of nuance is needed because there are, there are games, there are systems that are set up to, to take advantage of people. And if we're, cry, if we're, if we're going to be the boy who cried wolf about everything, that's on an LCD screen or an OLED, um, we're not, we're not going to be able to see the scary stuff when, when it actually gets sold to our kids. It's mm, a very good point. And I guess um, in terms of though that the Fortnite example and that and that sort of yeah. perhaps obsessional nature of you know let's get the next skin, let's pay some money for that. Is that any different really to say model making? For you know, I have got some friends who you know paint small models or you know collecting collecting other element, you know, more analog, real-world things? Is it the same impulse? Well, I don't know. So there's, there's no reason to think it isn't, mm. right? Um, which isn't to say that people aren't, you know, tremendously passionate about their Warhammer figures or their Warhammer, aspects. that's the one, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, 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 could, I, could, I could hear you talking around talking about Warhammer there. Um, but it... Um, Sorry, it's a very nerdy pursuit, of which I'm familiar. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it you know, there, there are some differences in that um, in many cases, the teams that build these collectibles are, are kind of larger, mm. maybe. So, so I don't know how many people work for Her Majesty's stamp service. Okay, yeah. You know, but um, but I understand that that's a hobby that's that's gone that's gone out of fashion, um, at least in in some demographics. And and I don't know about Warhammer. I think Ian Livingston is still quite happy with how things have gone. Um, but but yeah, I, I think the arc here is that um, there's a there's always a new thing, and the pace of it might be a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. So you know, two years ago you and I wouldn't have used Fortnite as an example. Mm. We would have used Pokemon Go. Yeah. And instead of us talking about skins, we'd be talking about augmented reality, wandering around outside. And, you know, instead of, you know, being sedentary, we'd be, you know, we'd be worried about people walking into traffic. You know, so we, we, would, we would sub out specific fears and anxieties and mechanics 
and then we would be talking about something else. But th there's no reason to think that Fortnite is a more fun or more, uh, and I put very heavy quotes around the word addictive, more addictive game than, Poke uh, than Pokemon Go or Pokemon Go than Fortnite. It's just that we're talking about one because one is newer. And so do you think that as a teacher, you know, why, why, is computer, why are computer games and, the, and screen time in general, why do you think they become this sort of uh, target, if you like, for, for multiple problems? Is it, is it because screen time's an easy target? Is it because of the press around it? Is it because mm. there's some, some common sense co correlation there? Why do you think that happens? I don't know. I, I think it's easier to say, well, we have to break this uh, into two parts. We have to break this into the, you know, on the school grounds versus off the school grounds. Mm. Um, off the school grounds, everything else that I've said so far applies, which is that we're fed a, a steady diet by the press of most recent study says screens are bad for kids. And so if you show people enough of those terrible articles based on terrible research, some portion of people will begin to have terrible ideas about screens. Yeah. Um, but, when it come, you know, but when it comes to, to, to on, on campus or, or in the classroom, um, you know, I, I think the dynamic changes a bit. Like, in a way, screens are the, the kind of apps and games and screens, they, they're, they're kind of other contexts that are nested inside the schoolroom. So my dad will say that he doesn't, the only, my dad will say the, the most magical thing about screens is that teenagers think that when they're looking down at them, they become invisible. <laughs> because when he, you know, like, and, I, and I've, I've seen this in his classroom too, which is that, uh, you know, uh, a kid looks down to text and they have no theory of mind about how they look from the front of the classroom. Yeah. It's it's really an amazing effect, and so I think that there is, is, is definitely a sense that this is a, um, and, and it's an accurate sense. This is a subversive private context. This is this is note passing on steroids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so the thing is that yeah, there's a really good case to make. Unless technology has a, a, a purpose like communicating with family or or a, a specific place in pedagogy. Um, there's there's a case to make that that it might be a distraction and it shouldn't be in a classroom, um, but but those kinds of things you don't need a social science you don't need a large scale social science study to tell you that as a teacher or or as a head teacher um, you, you you do that in line with your pedagogical values mm. um, and 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 you you shouldn't confuse that with um, kind of a, a prescriptive sense that that follows young people out of the classroom and i guess the final question then is if you were a teacher in a in a secondary school in this country so you're dealing with 11 to 18 year olds or 11 to 16 year olds depending on depending on the school mm -hmm. where would you know would one would you be worried about technology and screen time in terms of your students uh, end outcomes at school and secondly would you be worried about it from a pastoral sense in terms of their social or um, safeguarding terms right so I think the main thing here is that like many other parts of kind of the challenges of raising young people there's there's a kind of a process of you know meeting a kid meeting a child where he or she is mm -hmm. 
and helping them kind of um, uh, build resilience and develop into a young adult. Mm. And so this is a process of scaffolding. This is a process of, of stabilizing. And then as a child or young person develops, there's kind of a de-scaffolding. So it's not just technology, but there's kind of other aspects. There's, there's social skills, there's, there's civic aspects, there's relationship aspects, peer aspects. And so, you know, tech, tech is kind of part of that. And I think that if you're engaged in kind of a pastoral capacity, you should always be at least curious about the, 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 the aspects of a young person's life that are kind of like a black box. And so some of those black boxes are going to make sense. Those are going to be privacy. Those are going to be, you know, uh, uh, things having to do with the young person's dignity. Um, but but other other parts of that are, are are going to be potentially, you know, really problematic. And so, um, you know, the thing that I would look out for is, you know, a young person who has no one to turn to, either in a digital or in an analog way. Mm-hmm. If a young person is having to kind of pick between being honest with other people, you know, uh, uh, caregivers, um, you know, if they're having to pick between being honest and, and having technology taken away, um, that's a pretty, that, that's potentially uh, a, a warning sign. And that's something that I'd kind of tune into mm-hmm. um, because if you make a young person pick between a risk and their entire social life, um, they're probably going to pick the risk. Yeah. Um, but, but kind of, you know, th- that being said, you know, the, I, you know, I started by saying that, you know, the assumption here is that the digital and the analog are separate and neither the, neither the twins shall meet. Um, I don't think they are if you're a teacher. You know, I don't think they are if you're engaging with pastoral care. I think that there's a continuum here. Um, so there isn't, you know, I don't think there's any way that as a teacher you know that a kid is playing 10 hours of League of Legends at night. Um, that's probably not good for them. They're probably going to burn out on it. Um, but, but I really don't think that that's the thing to, to, to be most worried about. I think that if a young person is anorexic or bulimic or hurting themselves, cutting themselves, um, there might be a dynamic there with social media. Um, but these things are a lot more subtle than, than just an hour count. That's superb. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's really interesting.